0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we will examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with a warning that the U.S. response to Russian aggression in Ukraine has quickly expanded beyond the immediate military contest in Ukraine into a broader and longer-lasting conflict with Russia, and that a new Cold War with Russia does not bode as well as the previous one and will not end victoriously with a unipolar moment. Indeed, it may not end at all. Joining us is Paul Piller, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. Previously, he served as Chief of Analytics Units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf, and South Asia. He also headed the Assessments and Information Group of the Director of Central Intelligence Counterterrorism Center and is currently a professor of security studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies. We will discuss his article at the National Interest, How Can the New Cold War with Russia End? Then we'll discuss the Biden administration's decision to deploy U.S. rocket systems in Ukraine, which the Russians warned could increase the risk of confrontation between the two nuclear powers, and speak with Lawrence Korb, who is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and a senior advisor to the Center for Defense Information. He served as Assistant Secretary of Defense and is the author of a new national security strategy in an age of terrorist tyrants, and weapons of mass destruction. Then finally, we'll look into whether the subpoena served on Peter Navarro means the Department of Justice may be investigating Trump as well as the failure to convict a lawyer for Hillary Clinton after a three-year investigation by the special prosecutor Barr appointed to prove the Trump oil fantasy that Trump was spied on. Joining us is Harry Littman, a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, a Professor of Political Science at the University of California, San Diego. He is Executive Producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast, and legal affairs columnist at the Los Angeles Times. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Paul Piller, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. Previously, he served as Chief of the Analytics Units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf, and South Asia. He also headed the Assessments and Information Group of the Director of Central Intelligence Counterterrorism Center and was Deputy Chief, and is currently a Professor of Security Studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies. Andy has an article at the National Interest, How Can the New Cold War with Russia End? Welcome to Background Briefing, Paul Pillar.
1: Thank you, Ian. It's good to be with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Paul. And your article is essentially a warning that uh, the response the U.S. has led to Russia's aggression in Ukraine has kind of morphed into a, a broader and longer-lasting conflict with Russia. So, How far along the path are we and how much do you think this drift towards what could be an endless war with Russia?
1: Well, I think we're fairly far along a path that was set by the anger and outrage, quite justified of course, uh, over what Putin's forces have been doing in Ukraine, complete with atrocities to add on to the initial... Uh, offense of launching an offensive war. Uh, I was somewhat reassured uh, by some of the things in the uh, op-ed over the president's signature this week in the New York Times, in which, among other things, he explicitly uh, disavowed any uh, objective of regime change. And uh, I think I, I read that piece as toning down somewhat Uh, the objective of weakening overall uh, Russia, but uh, I don't think we've, in order to get off this path entirely, we would have to have a clearer collective view of the end objectives and the end of this war. And I think we're far from that, not only within the Western Alliance generally, but just within the United States and even within the U.S. government.
0: So the op-ed, of course, uh, by President Biden is, in today's New York Times, concurrent with that op-ed, or in fact included in the op-ed, is the fact that President Biden is going ahead with a rocket system, not the longer-range rocket system that apparently there were subjections to deploying within the National Security Council itself, but the Highmark system, which can... Fire rockets about fifty miles behind the lines, which would then perhaps give the Ukrainians an advantage since the Russians outgun them in terms of artillery. So it's a mixed message, isn't it, Paul? on the one it hand,
1: it is, and uh, you know what you mentioned about the hardware shipments um, presents some pretty difficult uh, decisions for the administration between helping the Ukrainians sustain the fight in the East and uh, staying far away from anything that would constitute an attack on Russia. That combat in the Eastern part of the country has become in very large part an artillery duel in which having a little bit more range uh, does make a big difference, but uh, there have already been you know, some um, explosions uh, inside Russia close to the border uh, when there was fighting more in the north of Ukraine that seemed to be the responsibility of the Ukrainians, and that raised the the specter of uh, conflict getting into Russia proper and uh, further escalation of the war. We haven't seen, I don't think, incidents like that again in the most recent couple of weeks, Uh, but it certainly is a difficult set of decisions uh, when it comes to providing the kind of artillery systems that you mentioned.
0: So, what you're arguing, though, in your article at The National Interest, how can the new Cold War with Russia end? You're saying the United States is, in effect, declaring a new Cold War with Russia?
1: Well, I think when, when you take something like Secretary Austin's statement that an objective is to weaken Russia, well, that clearly goes, you know, beyond... Any objective about restoring Ukrainian sovereignty over its territory—that is a much bigger goal. Now the administration seems to have, not exactly walked that back, but uh, you know hasn't been using, hasn't made a point of using that sort of language more recently. But I think that sort of phraseology—and it clearly was not just a misspoken statement by the secretary—that that was reflected some policy del- deliberation. Uh, That, I think, is is one way you can define a new Cold War. It's uh, when you face uh, another great power that you consider your adversary and you say our objective is to weaken that power, um, that, that goes far beyond the war in Ukraine.
0: And, of course, President Biden did say at one point, for God's sake, this man has to go or something along those lines, which is. yeah. Uh, well,
1: well that, that, you know, that was more under the gaffe category you know, the the White House, you know, quickly walked that back. And that's why I say I was somewhat reassured and, and no doubt it was with that gaffe as part of the background that in the op ed that we were just talking about, he has this very explicit denial that uh, we're not out to change Putin's regime, however much I may disagree with him.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Paul Piller, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. Previously, he served as Chief of Analytics Units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf, and South Asia. And he also headed the Assessments and Information Group of the director of Central Intelligence Counterterrorism Center and is currently a professor of security studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies, and he has an article of the national interest. How can the new Cold War with Russia end? So what then are the other options that exist here? And do you believe that Zelensky has made it clear that he feels that the only way to end this war is through an agreement, uh, that there's no military solution? And in fact, uh, Biden mentions that in his op-ed in today's New York Times. What leads you to believe that Putin would make a deal or would not just have a ceasefire, then regroup and try again?
1: Well, well, you know, uh, Biden is right and Zelensky is right that this war is going to end with some sort of coming to terms. Um, Now, there are various possibilities. You can have an explicit uh, ceasefire or armistice agreement. Uh, You can have an explicit agreement that is followed by a more general settlement of issues and concern. Or it is still a possibility that it could become more of a frozen conflict in which we have a de facto ceasefire for the most part. You don't have anywhere near the fighting that uh, has been going on for the last uh, three months, um, but without an explicit coming to terms. But in any of those cases, um, both sides have to have reached a decision that continued warfare will not work to their advantage and will not improve their bargaining position anymore. That's the condition that has to be achieved. And right now, I don't think that's true of either side. Uh, Both the Russians and the Ukrainians uh, have reason to believe um, that they would uh, gain some more ground or improve their position with additional fighting. On the Russian side, I think it's mainly despite all of their setbacks, the fact that they have now uh, reduced their uh, objectives and reduced the front on which they're fighting and, and, and can concentrate their forces more on a narrower front in the east, uh, gives them some hope that with their larger population and forces, uh, they can gain some more ground. On the Ukrainian side, I think the hope rests mainly on, on two things, the, the motivation and morale for one, And their continued uh, support in the form of hardware shipments uh, from their supporters in the United States and Europe. So I I unfortunately expect there will be more heavy fighting to go for a while, whether that's another month, two months, six months, who knows. But eventually, uh, each side is going to uh, quietly decide that, all right, there's nothing else we can gain militarily. And uh, we have to come to terms, whether explicitly or, as I suggest, maybe tacitly, through a frozen conflict.
0: So your article points out, or at least you suggest, that a new Cold War with Russia would be very much contrary to U.S. interests and to international security generally. And that the one fundamental difference, I guess, among many, uh, between the old Cold War and 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 a possibly new Cold War is that after the Nixon trip to China, the U.S. was able to play China off against Russia, but that's not happening now. That China, quoting you, is an economic and increasingly military superpower that is providing strategic depth to Putin's Russia. So walk us through some of the other comparisons between the old Cold War and the new Cold War that make this one, if it's indeed about to happen, different. Sure.
1: Well, you, you alluded to one of the more important dynamics, and that has to do with the relationship with China and so on. And what what Nixon was doing in the 70s uh, was taking advantage of and you know playing the U.S. cards in a way that sustained this, where the United States had better relations with both Moscow and Beijing than they had with each other. And so there was this triangular diplomacy. It didn't accomplish everything Nixon wanted to with regard to the Vietnam War and so on but it certainly put the United States in a relatively advantageous place. Today, it's the opposite situation. Uh, the United States has worse relations with both Russia and China than the two countries have with each other. Uh, so that's, that's a distinct disadvantage uh, right there. Um, I think the other uh, major set of disadvantages that the new Cold War poses to the United States in contrast to the one that, ended some three decades ago is that, you know, the old one was an ideological contest uh, between uh, the communist East and the uh, liberal democratic West. And uh, the United States had the good ideology. It was uh, one that not only in the end proved to be uh, one that promised more prosperity and productivity, but obviously, you know, more freedom and, uh, and more democracy. Uh, which uh, proved to be important to a lot of people. Today, uh, one can't say the same thing. It's not an ideological contest. It's more of a great power competition, uh, whether it's with Russia and China or with both. And as far as the ideology is concerned, you look at uh, the efforts the United States has been making over these last few weeks to put together a coalition that would stand up to russia with regard to sanctions and so on and we see even uh democracies you know notably uh india often billed as the world's largest democracy that are hesitant to do that they want to maintain more of a, a neutral sort of posture between the united states and and russia uh and not least important um the fact that the United States, given all the difficulties that our own democracy has come under, uh, is not the role model that it once might have been uh, during the earlier Cold War. And in the article, you know, I, I quote uh, George Kennan in his uh, his famous uh, X article in which he laid out the principles, as he saw it, of containment of the USSR during the first Cold War. And one of the things he underscores was the importance of, basically to paraphrase him, the United States having its domestic house in order. Uh, And that to see the kind of political fractionation and political games that we see played today uh, from a partisan perspective, that's exactly the sort of thing that Kennan said would not stand us in good stead in uh, waging the previous cold war. And it certainly does not stand us in good stead in waging a new cold war.
0: And just to quote your article on what Kennan said, any exhibitions of indecision, disunity, and internal disintegration within our country would be a boost to the communist adversary. Now, we are in a very divided country, and it'll be divided even more as long as Donald Trump controls the Republican Party and is trying to make a comeback in 2024. You say that American democracy itself is on the brink of failure. I think that is absolutely evident, there's also some suggestions uh, that with OPEC+, Plus, which is in, in effect a, a, an alliance between Putin, MBZ in the Emirates and MBS in Saudi Arabia, that the Saudis could well finance a revival of Trump. And uh, I'm sure Putin, given the current war, uh, which he believes is a war against America, uh, he'll be much less restrained in terms of... Uh, Giving tech support to a a Trump comeback in terms of cyber and election interference. So, do you see that on the horizon?
1: Yes, unfortunately, I do. And uh, Putin, when he has time uh, aside from the current war, to reflect on the bet that he placed in the on the 2016 U.S. election. Which, uh, you know, with the Russian interference that year, it started out perhaps mostly just trying to discredit American democracy. And then later, when Trump's candidacy um, gained some momentum, then it became a more explicit uh, support for Trump. Well, he can look back at that and look back at the four years of Trump and conclude immediately that that was a very good investment from his point of view uh, in terms of how under Trump, the Western... Alliance became more fractured than it ever did before. You had a U.S. president who was absolutely um, sycophantic toward toward Putin uh, to the point of, you know, famously saying he believes Putin more than he believes U.S. Uh, security services. And so, I have absolutely no doubt um, that if Trump, uh, you know, makes either if Trump makes the run in 2024, or you have sort of a Trump 2.0, one of his. Um, uh, you know, one of the governors or somebody who is trying to uh, take up uh, the support that Trump had, uh, that Putin will have no hesitation whatsoever of interfering, at least to the extent that he did in 2016.
0: So, just in closing, then, does Putin have an incentive to make a deal if he if he could bring back Trump, who is essentially his puppet?
1: Well, I think that the calculation would be what the timescales are. Um, you know, in the war that's going on in in Ukraine, um, the you know Russian forces have experienced very rapid attrition and uh, capabilities have gone down. And I think he probably he and his commanders have concluded uh, if they're going to uh, you know make some more progress in Ukraine and strengthen their bargaining position in the way I was talking about before, they they probably want to do it soon. So something on the order of, uh, you know, the US election cycle looking to 2024 is probably, you know, outside the time frame that uh, is relevant to most of their decisions on Ukraine.
0: Well, Paul Piller, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it.
1: It's a pleasure, Ian.
0: And I've been speaking with Paul Piller, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia, Previously, he served as a, as chief of the analytics units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf, and, the, and South Asia. He also headed the Assessments and Information Group of the Director of Central Intelligence's Counterterrorism Center and is currently a professor of security studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies. And he has an article at the National Interest, How Can the New Cold War with Russia End? We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing the Biden administration's decision to deploy U.S. rocket systems in Ukraine, which the Russians warn could increase the risk of confrontation between the two nuclear powers. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lawrence Korb, who is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and a senior advisor to the Center for Defense Information. He served as Assistant Secretary of Defense and is the author of A New National Security Strategy in an Age of Terrorists, Tyrants, and Weapons of Mass Destruction. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lawrence Korb.
2: Nice to be with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Lawrence, and it's been a little confusing uh, about whether the U.S. is going to send these rocket systems to Ukraine. As of yesterday, the White House was was indicating that they weren't going to send them, and then today, the president has an op-ed in the New York Times, What America Will and Will Not Do in Ukraine, where he says that, that... I've decided that we will provide the Ukrainians with more advanced rocket systems and munitions that will enable them to more precisely strike key targets on the battlefield in Ukraine. So they've obviously decided not to send the multiple launch rocket system, but instead they're sending the high-mobility artillery rocket system known as HIMARS. So I guess that's what the battle within the White House has been over, apparently Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, has been on the side of caution, whereas Secretary of State Blinken had been on the side of helping the Ukrainians more. So, is that your understanding?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm basically, and you have that same dispute in the Congress and I think in the country where people want to help Ukraine. They want to prevent Russia from taking over all or parts of it, but they don't want to provoke a a war with uh, Russia. Because remember, you got the two largest uh, nuclear powers in the world, if that should happen.
0: So these HIMARS systems, they, they fire rockets, uh, fire six rockets at, what, about 50 miles, but no further? Whereas uh, the other one, the MLRS system, goes about 150 miles. So that right. could st- strike Russian territory. So that's...
2: Yeah, That's, the, go yeah, ahead. that that was the you know the thing. The MLRS, to be exact, can go 186 miles, which obviously would enable them to attack a targets in Russia. Whereas the one they're sending, it's limited to 50 miles, which will enable them to target the Russian forces in Ukraine who are shelling all of the uh, cities in the east of Ukraine to try and get a land bridge to Crimea.
0: So. What is then the timeline on this? How quickly, if this battle is underway, and my understanding is that for every one artillery round the Ukrainians fire, the Russians fire 10, so they're just pounding the east, how quickly can they get these HIMARS mobile systems into Ukraine to attack the rear of the Russians so that they can level the playing field?
2: well you can get the initial things in there in a matter of <clears throat> a matter of days to get everything in that you want probably will take about a week you got to get them into uh, poland but don't forget we already have a lot of these systems in europe because of our involvement in, uh, in in nato
0: so what about though getting them within the country wouldn't the russians be free to target the transport across Ukraine to the front
2: well they, they've been they've been able to do that ever since this war started but in terms of how we're doing it it's been pretty successful to keep the Russians from uh, attacking all the equipment don't forget I mean we've sent tons and tons of equipment already in the last four months
0: so th- these systems would not require US personnel I mean how do you hand over a brand new weapon system uh, without? training the Ukrainians?
2: Well, again, they've shown themselves very quick of doing it. And I'm sure we'll send, uh, you know, written instructions. And don't forget, we have many Americans there who volunteer to serve, many of whom have had military experience. I mean, we haven't publicized it that much, but there are many of them already there.
0: So this then wouldn't require US trainers?
2: No, I mean, you're basically talking about something that just can go uh, further. I mean, you've had weapon systems in there like the Javelin anti-tank missiles and everything like that that you've been using. So it's really just a question of uh, upping what you've already had.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Lawrence Korb, who's is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and a senior advisor to the Center of Defense Information. He served as Assistant Secretary of Defense and is the author of a new national security strategy in the age of terrorist tyrants and weapons of mass destruction. So just to touch on what President Biden uh, wrote in the op-ed in the New York Times today, what America will and will not do in Ukraine. He starts out by saying America's goal is straightforward. We want to see a democratic, independent, sovereign, and prosperous Ukraine with the means to deter and defend itself against further aggression. As President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine has said, ultimately this war, quote, will only definitively end through diplomacy. So, and of course, President Biden went on to say that the United States does not want to get involved with uh, any kind of military activity with Russia, and they want to avoid nuclear wars, even though, of course, he points out that the Russians have been somewhat irresponsible with their nuclear saber rattling. So that's obviously the goal to what? Well, you tell me, what do you think is the goal here, The,
2: The goal is to prevent the Russians from taking over large portions of Ukraine that they don't already control. Technically speaking, or legally speaking, their annexation of Crimea eight years ago, that was illegal. But I don't think we're going to keep this war going till you can get Crimea back. There are certain areas in the Donbass that the majority of the people basically have been part of Russia de facto. They you know resisted. I mean, that's what you're looking for, a face-saving way out where Putin can claim, well, I you know, I, I protected the Russian-leaning people here in the Donbass region. That's what you're looking for. And I think if you're looking for a, a way out, you ought to take a look, or we should take a look at what Henry Kissinger said last uh, you know, last week in Davos at the at the conference there, that you're going to have to come up with a negotiated solution that allows Russia to claim some sort of psychological victory, even if it's not, that you know very meaningful in terms of uh, what they what they get.
0: So, do you think that Putin would settle for that a face saving measure? Uh, well, I,
2: I I think he probably doesn't want to, but he would have to because, don't forget, you've had about twenty thousand you know uh, Russians already killed, and you know you in their offensive, as they call it in the East here, where they're, you know, sending uh, these troops into these cities, you know, behind these armor attacks, they're losing lots of people. There was one unit that started out with 600 people by the time they got into the city had like 20 left. So that's another price. These sanctions are beginning to have an impact on his, his economy. Okay. Not as quick as we had hoped, but over time it's going to get worse. So he's going to have to make a decision. Does he want to continue to that? Because I think by sending these uh, very sophisticated artillery or rockets, we have indicated that, you know, we're not going to, uh, you know, we're not going to back down here with Ukraine. And if you want to conquer them, you're going to have to keep paying a steeper and steeper price to take over just a small part of the country.
0: Well, meanwhile, of course, the Ukrainians are losing uh, 100 men a day. That's what I understand.
2: Oh, yeah, no doubt about it. But again, this is something that they're willing to do because it's for their their country. Whereas the Russians, basically, this is not some noble mission. You know, you've seen uh, a lot of them defect. You've seen, uh, you know, very bad morale. Seven generals have already been uh, killed. Uh, you know, I mean, this is a much different thing for the Ukrainians. It's a all out war for the Russians. It's a limited uh, conflict, sort of like when we were in Vietnam, even though we left and we didn't accomplish our objective. This wasn't like losing Hawaii or Alaska.
0: Well, apparently, Ukraine is actually doing well in in, uh, Kurzon. They may actually be able to do a counterattack and perhaps even drive the Russians out of that city because uh, Russia's invested so much of its military in Donbass. So this may end up being uh, not a, a, a mixed bag for the Russians. They may make gains in the Donbass but lose an important uh, stronghold in the south. Well, that, that's right. And there's a big difference between
2: conquering a city by blowing it up and then running it because the people don't want you. You know, I was in Moscow in December of last year at a conference, they had two US representatives, about 20 countries were there. And in my speech, I told the Russians that if you go into Ukraine, even if you do well initially, the Ukrainians are already organizing what we would call an insurgency. And there's no way that you can, quote unquote, win any more than you could in Afghanistan or we could in Vietnam. I had hoped as a result of this, that not just me, but others, that they wouldn't uh, do it. Unfortunately, they ignored that advice from me and uh, I think many, many other other people and went in. But this was foreseen that this would not be like it was in 2014 because we had been training the Ukrainian military for the last seven years. I mean, they're pretty capable. They don't have the same size as the Russians, but they're very, very skilled in in, in, in war fighting.
0: Well, but these systems that we're just sending in, the HIMARS, the Biden administration has, has been wavering for weeks over this, apparently this This debate between Blinken and Jake Sullivan has been going on for weeks, so we've sent a lot of stuff, but we haven't necessarily done it as soon as we could have or should have, at least according to what the Ukrainians want.
2: Well, there's no doubt about it. I mean, this is a significant upgrade, and even though what we're sending can only go 50 miles, depending upon you know where the Ukrainians put it, they could hit you know, into Russia. So I think we really wanted to delay this and make sure that the Ukrainians knew that they we do not want to provoke a wider war here. I mean, the Ukrainians might think that why shouldn't we attack Russia? They've attacked us. But we're saying, you know, you go down that path, you're not going to get any more help from the US and our NATO allies.
0: So that you f- think is sufficient, along with a limited range of.
2: That's this. right, and, and and I do think that's why they delayed, because this was not just like sending an anti-tank missile, which obviously you couldn't hurt Moscow
0: with. Right, but Moscow, of course, is saying that uh, the U.S. is uh, adding fuel to the fire. At least that's what Peskov has said.
2: Well, no doubt about it. And Lavrov had warned us about sending sending these uh, the, these in. But the fact of the matter is, uh, I think that they were surprised that we did because, as we've spoken about, there is a certain risk. I have confidence that the Ukrainians know what the downside would be, that they would not do it, they would not attack uh, you know, Moscow, and they're not getting the ones that can go 186 miles either.
0: Well, one of the things that... Uh... Biden said in his op-ed in the New York Times today, what America will and will not do in Ukraine is, I'll just quote Biden, we do not seek a war between NATO and Russia. As much as I disagree with Mr. Putin and find his actions an outrage, the United States will not try to bring about his ouster in Moscow. That's a pretty amazing thing, isn't it, for an American president to say we're not going to get rid of a Russian president?
2: Well, it's I think it's very important because remember, at one point, Biden and his secretary of defense, General Austin, had seemed to indicate that that was one of our goals. And you may remember that, you know, people have had to back that off. So I think what he's saying is, you know, he called Putin a war criminal and all of these things that that's not our goal to get rid of him. And I think he wanted to make that clear. So Putin doesn't say, I've got to keep fighting because if I don't, I'm gone.
0: Right, but the problem with Putin is that he may be delusional. As far as we know, the only person he listens to is Nikolai Patrushev, who's a complete nutcase, and uh, Shoigu, his defense minister, who's been somewhat hidden lately because obviously somebody's got to take the blame for all this. We don't know what kind of advice he's getting. I mean... I'm assuming that he knows that things aren't going well, but I don't believe he, Putin can get his head around the reasons why the, the Russian military is doing so poorly, and that is because of the corruption of his own regime, where, for example, Prigozhin, his chef, is in charge of procurement for the military, and he's pocketing a, a lot of the money, and it's, and the troops aren't getting fed, and they have to loot... Ukrainian homes and steal everything they can. I mean, it, the behavior of the Russian military is absolutely contemptible.
2: Well, no doubt about it. And the fact is, you still have a draft. So you've got a lot of people that are forced to serve, and they were told that this would be over in a matter of days, and you've had a lot of you know, desertions. Uh, you've had at least one person prosecuted for war crimes who admitted, I was told to shoot that civilian.
0: So just, I guess, in closing though, Lawrence, do you think that this is going to work? In other words, this will force Putin to the negotiating table, or will he double down? Because this is his war. This is a war of choice. He decided to prosecute it. So it's on him if he ends up with egg on his face, isn't it?
2: Well... In a democratic system, yeah, it would be. But since he controls, I mean, there's no way he's going to get voted out of out of power. So uh, if he and I think, you know, maybe I'm just too optimistic. He will settle for something that looks like he won rather than allowing him to win. I think, the, you know, the, the real question is, you know, how long is he willing to go and how much uh, of the price is he willing to pay? And don't forget. At one point, he even talked about using nuclear weapons. And, you know, he sort of backed off on that, you know, for, fortunately. But, uh, you know, one point that he was trying to scare us and not aiding Ukraine any, anymore.
0: Well, he's also conducting a nuclear drill today, apparently.
2: That's right. Yes, he is. In fact, again, I have an op-ed that was in Just Security published yesterday that got into this whole nuclear, you know, question and the way out uh, of it.
0: Which is, if you could briefly summarize your argument.
2: Well, basically, what we need to do is make it clear what the price would be and also get back to the bargaining table with the Russians on nuclear weapons. You know, people say, well, you know, when I worked for President Reagan, he negotiated with Gorbachev, even though... What fourteen thousand Russians were dying in Afghanistan because we were aiding the Mujahideen against them?
0: Well, Lawrence Korb, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
2: Okay, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Take care. Be well.
0: You too. And again, I've been speaking with Lawrence Korb, who is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and a senior advisor to the Center of Defense Information. He served as Assistant Secretary of Defense and is the author of a new national security strategy in an age of terrorist tyrants and weapons of mass destruction. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the failure to convict a lawyer for Hillary Clinton after a three-year investigation by the special prosecutor Barr appointed to prove the Trump world fantasy that Trump was spied on. <laughs>
3: Tonight two great ships will pull back to their ports Depleted of everything that shoots flames and reports And in the morning the shells will wash up on the shore And the mighty of earth will have no other recourse But to shiver and shake
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Harry Litman, a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, now a Professor of Political Science at the University of California, San Diego. He's executive producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast and a legal affairs columnist at the Los Angeles Times. Welcome to Background Briefing, Harry
4: Litman. Thanks, Ian. Always good to be here.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Harry. And what do you make of the story in The Guardian that Peter Navarro had been subpoenaed? Uh, He was served on the 26th of May quite recently and that the DOJ may be investigating Trump. The article says that Peter Navarro, top White House advisor to Donald Trump, is being commanded by a federal grand jury subpoena to turn over to the Justice Department his communications with the former president the former president's attorneys, and the former president's representatives. Is that
4: really happening? Well, the subpoena is really happening, and there is that catnip there that they're asking for Trump. And I'll add the extra detail, which is that it's unusual to subpoena a target of an investigation. So you think, hmm, is he a witness to an investigation of Trump? I think not. Here And uh, the key is that the subpoena was issued by the D.C. U.S. attorney rather than the criminal vision division of the DOJ. And the D.C. U.S. attorney and the assistant U.S. attorney who's on the subpoena are handling the contempt uh, referrals from Congress. Uh, and Navarro is the object of a contempt referral. He's refusing to talk, even though he wrote a book about the so-called Green Bay sweep, etc. So why are they subpoenaing Trump's uh, information and why are they doing it for a target? I think it's not to get his testimony, which would be really unusual to do for a target, but just documents. And the reason they want them is to evaluate the claim of privilege. So He's saying – he's making a few arguments to try to um, uh, resist. He filed a lawsuit, and most of them are tired and rejected, like the January 6th committee has no um, legislative purpose, et cetera. But he's also saying that the communications were privileged. Let's say that were so – Then he wouldn't look to be uh, so culpable of contempt, right, if he had a really good faith belief or uh, an actually accurate one. So I think a responsible prosecutor wants to look at the communications in question to be able to determine, does this guy actually have a solid argument so that we shouldn't um, try to charge him criminally? that his communications with Trump were privileged and didn't, for that reason, need to be turned over. So I think that's what's uh, going on and why there's the um, titillating uh, mention of Trump himself in the subpoena.
0: But Matthew Graves, the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, his grand jury, which was in panel last year, they're pretty busy, aren't they? They've got Trump strategist Stephen Bannon They've got the organizers of the pro Trump rallies and they've also got Trump lawyers who's looking into a scheme to falsify the slate of electors and now they've got Navarro.
4: A whole slate of them. Who knows? They maybe also have Meadows. And I think if the committee is smart, they will short shortly have five Republican members of Congress who are thumbing their nose at the at a subpoena. From the committee, yep, they're they're busy now. Um, many of these, as with Bannon, are open and shut. But things like, is there some real claim of privilege or for Meadows, is there some kind of uh, claim or at least something that would exculpate him because he believed in this testimonial immunity that the Department of Justice has talked about? So those are those are factual nuances for some of them. Others are open and and shut. And for as far as I can tell, that includes the uh, members of Congress. It's aggressive of the committee to be going after them, but not, but legally speaking, to issue it. Uh, they, you know, they just have to comply. They're not complying. They should be referred, and they should be indicted.
0: Well, it's not just members of Congress. It's the the leader of the Republican. Uh, That's right. The minority leader Kevin McCarthy. So. So let's turn to the other story, which is the acquittal of the Clinton campaign lawyer, yeah. Michael Sussman. I've always found it extraordinary that there's so much focus on this idea that the Steele dossier was a, was misinformation. And what was really happening was that the Russians weren't trying to hurt Hillary Clinton and, and help Donald Trump, but rather the opposite, that the Russians were actually trying to hurt Donald Trump, which, uh, of course, doesn't make any sense. The idea that you've got this character Durham in the Justice Department who's been there for on three three plus years, three years, hasn't really come up with anything substantive. This was his first attempt to take somebody to court, and it fizzled. It just feels to me like it's the same wishful thinking, alternative reality, uh, alternative facts world that you have with the stop the steal. Notion that it's metastasized into what seventy to eighty percent of Republicans now believe that Trump is the legitimate president, and President Biden is illegitimate. So, is this? This seems to be an extension of that belief system. It's magical thinking, but
4: yeah, it's metastasized. It, look, there is some kind of abiding fantasy going on. So, just to to recapitulate it, um, you know, there was was a sense I, I think first um, testified to out of nowhere by Bill Barr in Congress, that there was spying on the Trump um, campaign by, as the story would have it, quote unquote, the Obama FBI. Really, really strange, because even, you know, the uh, apart from the, the uh, initial investigation, which opened uh, after the very harrowing uh, events of trying to, uh, you know, obstruct uh and investigation and um and and having you know given up classified information in the oval office to when when russian uh agents or um Representatives were there. Something you have to look into. So, where, so, but in any event, the idea is that somehow before then, it was all ginned up by the the Clinton campaign or the Obama FBI. But there really never has been a there there. So even these charges in the first instance, had they been valid, would have been and immaterial what they were saying there was nothing about some broad conspiracy it was a it was a guy uh who came and to give information about a possible connection between the trump campaign and a russian bank it didn't pan out it's true but he said he gave it not as a uh, because he used to work there and he wanted to give them a heads up They said that uh, Durham, who was put in place by Barr to get to the bottom of any of this spying, said that he really did it uh, on behalf of the Clinton campaign. You know, even if that were true, uh, it wouldn't have meant very much. Everybody knew that he was a Clinton campaign lawyer. And I think the jury reacted not just to the thinness of the proof, but just to the Picayune nature of the charges, a false statement that that it had nothing to do with nothing. But as you say, this is all that John Durham has really to show for himself for a broad ranging uh, mandate to find, you know, to investigate the investigators and find some kind of broad conspiracy against the uh, within government against the Trump campaign. It does seem the stuff of fantasy, and I don't know if he has any arrows left in his his quiver. This already was, I thought, a really unrighteous and trivial um, charge, even if accurate. And now, of course, the jury has rejected it. So it's a pretty sharp repudiation, I would say, not just of the prosecution itself, but the whole mandate and mission of John Durham.
0: But I suppose you could argue, though, Harry Lippman, that Trump and uh, his supporters have muddied the water sufficiently. I don't understand why there's not enough pushback, and maybe it's because we're in post-truth America that facts don't matter. But the obsession with the Steele dossier, which really the questions about that are that the people that put that together or that were behind it, Fusion GPS, they are definitely a little suspicious because at the same time they were doing the Steele dossier for the Clinton campaign, they were also working for the Russians to kill the Magnitsky Act and to have Bill Browder uh, basically sent to Moscow to be executed. So that's very suspicious, but the bottom line is that when Comey briefed then president elect Trump on the Steele dossier, Obama had already briefed the leaders of the Senate, both Democrats and Republicans, Ryan and McConnell and Pelosi and Schumer, or Reid, I think, I'm not sure. But in any case, the evidence that Obama was presenting to get the Congress to make an announcement that Russia was interfering in the campaign in 2016 was not based on the Steele dossier. It was based upon the fact that they had actual intelligence from the Kremlin. They had a, they had somebody inside Putin's Kremlin who was putting stuff on, on his desk, who was reporting what they were up to. So they had really solid
4: intelligence. Look, intelligence. That to this day is not doubted. No one doubts that Russia tried to interfere with the election and tried to do it to help um, Trump out. And the Steele dossier, first, it has next to nothing to do with the overall charges, uh, but but uh, that that were brought here. And don't forget, Steele himself is a former M16. Officer, that's Britain's, you know, uh, equivalent of intelligence services. He's provided valuable information in the past, and some of the more flamboyant stuff has been discredited. We don't know about everything, but the main point is, you risk these allegations being in the air. You've got to brief the president uh, elect, and then when the whole debacle with Michael Flynn ensues over Russia and and the firing of Comey to obstruct that and the uh, encounter with Russian operatives. You have to. The FBI would have been derelict if they didn't at least give some thought is something amiss here. And what you've just yourself in that question described, um, Ian, is a propensity to like, Pluck something from this episode, one from when he's a, a candidate, one that, you know, from a dossier that has nothing to do with the government and somehow try to mix it together and say, poof, there's a broad scandal on whose part? the democrats or even you know the obama uh, white house that was the dog that would never hunt and the things that they did look into they had to look into and the bottom line as you say of russian interference isn't really questioned so this is you know the the broader charges dearly held by many in the trump faithful to this state were really kind of ginned up out of uh, nothing and the the Sussman um prosecution that that Durham brought serves pretty strongly to repudiate the whole mission again as i say among reasonable people the faithful won't i'm sure will will you know ascribe it to prejudiced uh dc juries or or whatever but you know the jury system has worked here as the as the judiciary largely has in the trump Era and our mechanism for uh, ferreting out truth from fiction has um, found that you know Durham's Durham's mission is a wild goose chase.
0: And of course, the Senate Select Intelligence Committee did a bipartisan report, right. making That's right. it Bi- absolutely very, very clear. I mean, point, as, yes. as much as Mullard Fumbled the ball. The Senate Intelligence Committee really did deliver a, a definitive bipartisan report, which somehow is not getting the attention. So, and we know that Barr started this whole thing, as you pointed out, by talking about there was spying against the Trump campaign, which was, which led to this uh, whole alternative reality. But just in closing, then, Harry, why is it that the Attorney General Merrick Garland is allowing this character? to waste so much time and resources for three years to come up with such a pathetic attempt to justify this delusion on the American right led by Donald Trump.
4: Well, Barr appointed this guy as special counsel under the same uh, set of department regulations that Mueller was appointed under, and as you remember from back then, that means that somebody can be fired only for cause. So is a dogged, uh, pursuit of a, you know, of a, of a prosecution without merit. Is that for cause? I don't think so. That's what prosecutors, uh, do. And it's not shown that he himself, uh, you know, has been, um, acting. He, he, he's just been digging a dry hole. That's not the same as sort of normal for cause. But moreover, there's a political near imperative here. It would be really leading with with his chin for Merrick Garland to now fire the guy who his predecessor um, appointed. And it will look as if the fix was in and it was political. He had virtually no practical choice other than to let him stumble on, and probably still no practical choice even now he'll stumble on. I don't know if he's anything to stumble on to, but that, the fact of the matter is both under the regs that require cause and under the politics that would uh, create a huge stink if uh, he were sacked. Uh, they have to, uh, you know, keep this boil on their neck, as it were, not lance it, and let Durham, you know, do do as he as he will. Remember, one other big thing about Durham is his very respected deputy, career deputy, quit uh, because uh, it, it, she didn't say anything. She's a very honorable person, but to all accounts, she thought that things were really being, you know, pushed and politicized, and they were um, uh, pursuing pursued no without. <laughs>
0: So yeah. just in closing, then Merrick Garland, uh, you can't blame him for this because his hands are tied, but he did give the That's commencement. It, and it
4: worked out, by the way, right? I mean, it's yeah. worked out except for poor Michael Sussman, who spent a, a bundle and and had some very you know hard uh, hard nights.
0: Sure, but just to, just in closing, that Merrick Garland did speak at the Harvard commencement uh, ceremony yeah. on Sunday, and uh, there's been some critical writing about it in the opinion column of the Washington Post, for example, that he talked about how terrible January the 6th was, and he also talked about how terrible the voter suppression underway, making it difficult for America to vote in in this November election, not to mention 2024. But he never said... who was behind january the 6th, who's responsible for it who initiated it who planned it what the purpose of it was which was to overturn an election it was a, it was a, essentially a, a fascist coup that came dangerously close to succeeding and the same with uh, voter suppression he never mentioned that it's that it's the entirely the
4: republicans that are doing it so my my response to that, by the way, is come on, get a grip. Like Merrick Garland is going to go to Harvard and and name name names. That's not his job. He gave the kind of you know safe speech that an Attorney General gives at a Harvard commencement, and the and the post criticism you know just isn't isn't uh, you know living in the real world.
0: Right, right. Well, that makes sense uh, because. Yeah. He's got more important things to do, and he doesn't want to prejudice the work that's going on now. Exactly. Uh, as this, as the, uh, so, the House Select Committee investigating January the sixth has not presented him with the evidence, and
4: once they do that, then he's got something to talk about, right? No, he's, he, he, his rule will be he's got something to talk about when he's filing charges in court, and not before. That's that's no. his. You know, that's his righteous line. uh, Not everyone else's. He will hold to it. He'll talk in court and not in public.
0: Well, Harold Lippmann, I thank you very much for joining us.
4: Always a pleasure. Thanks, Ian.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Harry Littman, a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department and a Professor of Political Science at the University of California, San Diego. He's also the executive producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast and a legal affairs columnist at the Los Angeles Times. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.
3: The guy that lived next door in 305 took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine.